being in the midst of some sort of a challenge, whether you call it a crisis or not, right? A complication, a challenge, a messy season does not mean that your life has to be void of growth or um, joy or happiness or connection. And it certainly doesn't mean that you cannot contribute. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. You've probably heard of the Japanese tradition of kintsugi. You might not know what it's called. I had to look it up. What it is, is that tradition of mending broken pottery with gold, turning a broken vessel into a thing of beauty. So it's similar to what it was before it was broken, but the scars show. And the scars make the pottery beautiful. If you haven't seen this, you got to go look it up. They're just really some great examples of it. And why am I talking about this? Well... I'm just so happy to introduce you to today's guest as someone who honors that tradition of embracing broken beauty. I'm talking to Vanessa Joy Walker, who is a coach and founder of Gilliam Walker Management. Vanessa has also shared her story of hope, perseverance, and joy with thousands of people worldwide as a featured speaker. Her life experience is vast and includes, well, seasons of abandonment, betrayal, cancer, infertility, and grief. Her first book, Make Room for Joy, came out August of 2020 and challenges you to get real about pain while cultivating joy in the middle of life's most complicated seasons. I can't wait for you to meet her. But before we do, if you're new to this podcast, I want to let you know that I created a free guide for you designed to help you start taking the steps towards your next act. It's a workbook called Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot, and you can sign up to receive it as an email series with practical exercises you can use over the course of several weeks to get past feeling stuck. You can do these at your own pace, as they'll be waiting for you in your inbox when you're ready for the next step. I'll remind you at the end of the episode and tell you where to go to sign up if you're interested. Okay, here's Vanessa Joy Walker. Let's go. Hey, Vanessa, thank you so much for being here with me. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's it's so great to connect with you here and to see your face, even though maybe not everyone can see us right now. We're both smiling. It's the first time we've seen each other kind of in a face to face Zoomy yeah. kind of way yeah. in this weird world we're in, right? Yeah, right. It's so strange. It's It's interesting because sometimes I really look forward to the Zooms. Um, and then other times I dread them, you know, I and I used to love them before COVID. I used to kind of enjoy the, the difference of having a zoom call, a, a zoom meeting as opposed to, a uh, just a conference call. So you were uh, doing zoom before the rest of the world was doing zoom. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really embrace it until really until COVID, mm-hmm. I would say, but it's funny because this year I've made friends via Zoom 
and now via Clubhouse. But like you, I was I was going to say we skipped all the whole thing. Like I I usually say how I met people. I met you in Clubhouse, but I've met so many people over Zoom this year. So I know everybody like chest up, mm-hmm. and um, but I've actually made friends this way that uh that have that have really become like regular parts of my life now. And I've never met them in person. It's the weirdest thing. It's really weird. It's like it's it's like having pen pals, right? It's yeah. the modern day pen pal. I will say that I have really enjoyed the Zoom and and even Clubhouse and and other forms of social media, um, in small amounts, uh, just to create some sort of community. Uh, yeah. Because my husband and I had to leave New York. Well, it's, it's actually been exactly one year since we left New York. Um, and we left New York because of COVID. Our, our neighborhood was really just not doing very well and everything was shutting down. It was very difficult to socially distance and I'm immunocompromised. So it was, my anxiety level was really high. And so we had a friend in North Carolina that offered us a townhouse that she was not staying in. So we thought, sure, we'll go down there for three weeks, four weeks, work remotely, and then we'll come home. And we've never been back. Uh, Our lease was up in May in New York and we made the decision to stay in North Carolina um, at least for a couple of years. and it was incredibly difficult. I mean, I've lived in, gosh, New York for 20 years. Oh my gosh. Um, and so that place was really my home. Yeah. Um, so having a connection with Zoom and Clubhouse, especially with strangers or people that I don't know well, has been really wonderful because in New York, you're always meeting a stranger, right? You're always right. meeting someone you don't know. Yeah. Whether it's on the subway or at a coffee shop or standing in line at, you know, the farmer's market or wherever. You're it's always- It's one of the things I love about the city. I love it. And I love all the languages and all the people. And if we go into the city now, it, one of my favorite things to do is not have any plans. And we just wander yeah. the way we used to when we lived there. We'd go for a walk, you know, and just- just people watch. Just, oh my I God. Just wandering. Right. I oh. really miss wandering. Now that the you said that. Word, yeah. This like the, the joy of wandering around without thinking about where you're going to go or where you're going to end up or, or having to think about all that extra stuff that, that now we is kind of in, you know, almost intuitive now, right? Like get a max, do this, do that. But it's this extra level of stress Mm -hmm. that's on us, right? That kind of invades that creative wandering space. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I really, I look forward to the day when, when I can just wander again somewhere. Get lost. Me too. Wow. I, gosh. Yeah. I've, I've, this is so funny. I've discovered that I'm carrying tons of tension in my jaw these days. Mm-hmm. And I keep, and I'm, and I'm, and I don't know if it was always there or if I'm just more aware of it because I'm doing more work 
physically with my body these days with relaxation and meditation. And I'm so I'm like, am I just more aware now? Or is this 2020, 2021 stress that is like all collected in my jaw? You know, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it could be a combination of both too. I mean, my therapist was saying to me the other day, you know, just reminding me that the, um, the generalized corporate level of anxiety and stress has been raised, right? Mm -hmm. So for people who don't normally suffer from anxiety or depression at a level that it impedes their life, um, now they might be feeling things that perhaps would have gone unnoticed before because that level that we live at has changed. Mm -hmm. Um, We are all living at a higher level of uh, anxiety. And, um, and that changes the way we interact with ourselves. It changes the way our bodies respond to the world. Um, And it is, uh, it can be really wonderful because we learn things about ourselves when we're Mm -hmm. stressed. Mm -hmm. We learn things about ourselves when we're put into environments that uh, create uncertainty, Um, but it's also difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Growth is, I mean, it's all, growth is all about being in that uncomfortable zone, right? But there it is. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. So you call yourself a uh, life after crisis strategist strategist i love that i love tell me about that how did you come to that you know it's interesting because um when i was writing the book i really wanted to use the word crisis in the title of the book um in the subtitle talking about finding joy cultivating joy right Um, and the the book titles make room for joy make room for joy yeah and so so you've got like you've got joy and you've got crisis exactly and, and everyone told me not to use the word crisis. Oh. Um, and so I did it. I actually said in the subtitle says in the middle of life's most, the messiest seasons of life, which is also true. Right. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I wanted to use the word crisis is because everyone experiences crisis and I am on a mission to normalize crisis uh, and to normalize the idea of preparing for it so that we can contribute while we're in the middle of it Mm -hmm. and then allow it to transform inside of us and inspire us to a greater purpose after crisis. And I mean, life is just a series of crises. And some people think that that's a a pessimistic way of looking at life. But I actually think it's one of the most optimistic ways that you can look at life. Because when you can acknowledge that life is a series of challenges and obstacles and grief, I mean, we're always losing something. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's your keys or your sun, favorite sunglasses or, or a loved one or a job or a way of living, we're always losing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here we are going from 
grief to grief, from crisis to crisis, from obstacle to obstacle, from challenge to challenge. And if we're only waiting for the small moments between to enjoy life, well, then we're not really experiencing very much joy. Right. We're not really allowing ourselves to contribute through every season of our life. And so when I was in the middle of so many crises in my life, I mean, I've been through, it just feels like in some ways bad things happen to me. Um, and uh, at one point I realized, listen, there's nothing to be happy about right now. There's absolutely nothing to be happy about in my life right now. So I've got to figure out something. I've got to figure out how do I thrive in the middle of this disaster when I don't, I can't see the end, can't see the light at the, the end of the tunnel. I don't even know where the tunnel's going. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I'm in a tunnel. Maybe I'm just in a box that has no doors. Like I seriously was desperate. And so joy became this, this thing that I grasped onto and it really kept me alive. I mean, it wasn't a, um, I wasn't like a super positive person at that point in my life. It was really more of a, like, I'm either going to die or I'm going to live. And if I live, I've got to have something that will fuel me. Was this, I know you've been through cancer, sorry to interrupt, but I know you've been through cancer twice. Was this the first time or the second time that you had this awakening? This was the first time. Okay. The first time. And, um, and yet it intensified through the crises afterward, right? When I had cancer the second time, when I um, realized that I was not going to be able to have a biological child because of a genetic mutation, when we had a surrogate and I used my last embryo that had my DNA in it and we got pregnant and then we lost that baby. And, Mm. and all of those difficulties piled up on one another. Um, and there were plenty of times where I thought like, what is the point of continuing on? Like, what, what is the point of getting to the next season when I am not going to be able to take with me all of the things that I thought I was going to have, right? I'm not taking a child with me to the next season. I'm not taking this fabulous career that I thought I was going to have as an opera singer or, you know, a business person to this next season because I've spent so much time taking care of myself when everyone else was building families and building careers, I was keeping myself alive. Mm. And it was during that period of time that I really felt like God was telling me to begin to tell my story more um, in a more focused manner. And I mean, I had been sharing uh, and speaking on occasion here and there but I had not been very uh, intentional about it. And I didn't 
man, I don't see myself as a writer. I mean, Grammarly is my best friend. I <laughs> use the same words all the time and I love an exclamation point. I say it in my book. Like, oh my gosh, in I my book, I let, yes, right? <laughs> I actually let people know I, in the beginning of the book, by the way, I love an exclamation exclamation point. And most of them will probably be removed by the editor, but you'll know that there is one almost at the end of every sentence, you know? I love ellipses too. Right. (laughs) I'm always like trailing off the end of a thought. Yes. Yes. And a dash. I love a dash. (laughs) It's exactly how my brain thinks. Um, So I didn't really see myself as a writer, but it was the only, it was the only way that I felt comfortable communicating um, my story at that point, because I needed to become familiar again with my crises. So I began to write and I wrote every day and some of it I shared on Instagram and some of it I didn't. I mean, I didn't have any, I I signed up for Instagram simply so I would have somewhere to put my writing. Um, And by the end of that year, I had over a hundred thousand words written. And I got in touch with someone and, you know, this, this book came about. And as I began to go through that process, I was actually going through a coaching program at the time as well, because I, I was really interested in um, leadership coaching. And I'm, I say communicating is my coping skill, (laughs) not one of the many ones, but one of the strongest ones. And, um, I thought that I was going to pivot in my career from diversity, equity, and inclusion and operations into leadership coaching. And it was during this period of time where I realized that people have a really difficult time figuring out how to pivot after crisis. Yeah. We are not taught to evaluate our dreams, our goals, our relationships with others and our relationship with ourselves after we have gone through a traumatic event. And I also didn't see around me it being modeled for me that it was okay to change your mind right it was all about like before like you got to get well so you can go back to what you were doing and really make a difference I was like well I don't even know who I am anymore because crisis changes your emotional DNA it changes how you respond to the world and people started coming into my life that were in these very unique um, situations. For instance, I I had a woman who works at a well-known company in a a sales position. And, you know, she had just had a baby and was diagnosed with cancer. And Mm -hmm. she's in the middle of her, that, that time when you're supposed to be really working on your career in her late thirties. And she's like, I don't even know what I want anymore. Like what I thought I wanted a year ago was this. And now all of a sudden I've had a baby 
and I've had a cancer diagnosis and I still like my job, but I don't know how I want to show up at my job. And I don't even know where I want to go in my job. I don't even know how to ask for what I want because I don't know what I want. Right. It's so disorienting when you suddenly have that kind of identity crisis. It is, it is, um, my brain is blowing up right now with all the things that you've been talking about. There was, um, this is not necessarily a crisis in the way you define it, but when I was pregnant with my first child, I was, um, 35 and I was, I had been pursuing my acting career, which is what I had always wanted to do. And, and that was, that, that was, that was me. That was, that was how I self-identified was I'm an actress. And so I was pretty big at this point. And I was, my husband and I were riding up the subway line to our neighborhood with my acting teacher and his wife who already had two kids. And my acting teacher looked over at me and he's, he's, he looks at my belly and my husband's there with me too. And, and he says, your life is about to be blown to bits. <laughs> and his wife hit him and I hit him <laughs> and we laughed. And I thought, wow, that is like, the, the that is like, who says that to somebody who, who's pregnant? But, you know, after thinking about it, and after having their, our first child, I realized that, yeah, our lives were blown to bits. And that's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it was unrecognizable after the fact. And I didn't want to continue in theater. And all of a sudden it was like, well, geez, if that, if I'm not going to keep going, it took me two years to figure that out, by the way. And then the next three years after that, it was like, well, if I'm not going to do that, who am I? What do I do? Oh my God. And what does it say about me that I was willing to give that up? Yeah. Right. Those questions that we begin to ask ourselves. And, you know, I would challenge you and say, having a baby is a crisis. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful crisis. Absolutely. I always say it's the best and hardest thing I've ever done is being a mom. Because there are within, within that process, there are a million little crises, right? The first time you bring a baby home and you're like, oh my gosh, what the hell am I supposed to do? Right. Right. I remember mom, don't, if you listen to this, don't be mad at me for saying what the hell. Um, (laughs) I remember when my best friend from college, she had her kids when she was, she was the first of all of my friends to have her kids. She was in her twenties. And I remember her calling me from the hospital and her saying, oh my gosh, Vanessa, they're going to let Boyd and I go home with the baby. And I said, well, I that's the point, right? Like you're the parents, you're going to take the baby home. No, they're going to let Boyd take a baby home. (laughs) And I was like, you're going to be okay. You know? And I remember her going home and, um, you know, her milk hadn't come in yet. And she was distraught and she had people giving her advice and saying, you know, do this or don't do this. And, and that was a mini crisis, right? That was Mm -hmm. a crisis in that moment that was a crisis. Yes. Right. The first time her baby fell off the bed, 
that was a crisis. It's such an interesting idea to redefine this whole idea of crisis because, you know, the, the whole podcast that I'm doing is about midlife. Mm. And what do you, what's the next word? Crisis. Crisis. And I am really trying to, I also have been trying to avoid the word crisis when I talk about midlife because I want us all to redefine what we think about what it is to be in midlife and not necessarily associate it with crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact, they, they've, they've now gone back and looked at, 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 you know, the idea of a midlife crisis and it really in, in, in the actual definition of it, it really only applies to a small amount of the population. And more specifically, when that term came to being, it was all around a study that was about men and women weren't even included in the study. So it's, you know, interesting in that way, but, but yeah, to redefine the idea around crisis as is it could be any number of, of yeah. things, right? Yeah. And that being in the midst of some sort of a challenge, whether you call it a crisis or not, right? Mm -hmm. A complication, a challenge, a messy season does not mean that your life has to be void of growth or um, joy or happiness or connection. And it certainly doesn't mean that you cannot contribute. And I think that for me, that's the big thing. It's mm -hmm. one thing to care for ourselves, but at some point we have to ask ourselves, well, why are we caring for ourselves? We are in a, a world where self-care is everywhere, right? Take care of yourself, take care of yourself, take care of yourself. Great, but why? Mm -hmm. That's my question. Why? Why are we taking care of ourselves? Because when we allow self-care to stop at just us that's selfish right mm -hmm. it's self-involved um the point of caring for ourselves is so that we can contribute that is why we are here together on this world right whatever you believe whatever your faith base is whatever you have hope in everyone believes in something mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. um, and we are here to contribute. And so crises gives us opportunities to contribute differently. So instead of a midlife crisis, it can be a midlife opportunity, mm -hmm. right? Because a crisis allows you, it widens your frame of reference it gives you an opportunity to recognize a different kind of pain in the world. It gives you an opportunity to recognize a different kind of challenge in the world. So perhaps when you're walking down the aisle before you've had kids and there's a mom with a screaming child who's, you know, grabbing food off of the um, aisle and just making a ruckus, you know, you might have been like, oh, like, who is that mother? Like, get it together. And then the next thing you know, 10 years later, hmm. you've got a kid and your mm -hmm. kid is doing that same thing. <laughs> and you realize that. Exactly. And 10 years later than that, you're in a, 
in a supermarket again and you see another woman struggling, you mm-hmm. recognize that pain. And yeah. so instead of judging, you go and you contribute. Yeah. You say, Man, I've been there. And you pick up the cereal box and you look in the eyes of the child and you look in the eyes of the mom or the dad, the caregiver, and you say, I recognize where you are. I see you. Right. So powerful. That is it's so amazing powerful. what you don't know, what, what you don't know you don't know until yeah. you have passed through an experience so that you can then, I mean, I remember, oh my gosh, <laughs> I remember when my husband and I were engaged and I asked my sister-in-law to be my, my maid of honor. And um, by the way, she had two kids under the age of three, I think, I think two kids under the age of three. And then we, we had a very limited budget for our, for our wedding. And so it was a very homespun affair where a lot of people contributed and helped us. I, besides asking her to be my maid of honor, I also asked her to make us cupcakes instead of a wedding cake. I went with cupcakes and she happens to be really good at decorating cakes. So I asked her to decorate cupcakes for our wedding. What the hell was I thinking? Oh my gosh. And, and talk about self-involved. So I mean, now it's so funny. Every time our, our wedding anniversary comes around, I want to send her a card to thank her because she so graciously managed all of it without, without ever cluing me into what an idiot I was. Right. And now, and then having gone through, like, you know, realizing what it is to have young kids and what stress that is on all by itself. And then to think that, oh boy, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. You you just have no idea until you, until you live it. And so the idea of having a crisis is it puts you in a unique and particular situation to understand somebody else's situation, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and it makes you a better leader, a better partner, a better friend, a better mom, um, a better spouse, a better sister, um, a better citizen, right? It, it gives us more opportunities to contribute. Yeah. When life kicks you in the ass, there's an opportunity there, right? Exactly. Yeah. And there's nothing better. Like for me, there is nothing more rewarding and nothing more joyful than seeing my pain and my mistakes and my discouragement give hope to someone else. Mm. There is nothing, it, it feels, it feels so good that I almost feel guilty, right? Because I'm like, I know this isn't about me, but it feels so good to know that something beautiful really does, really can rise from the ashes. You know, you know, you hear these phrases, you know, beauty rises from the ashes, you know, or, or if it's in a lot of different texts, 
texts as well as is um, biblical text. But when you really think about it, like, so things have to be burnt and destroyed so that beauty can grow. Yes. Destruction and creation, they just go hand in hand. Every time you turn around, you get a forest fire and that fire creates the circumstances chemically for new growth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when I think when, so when I think about what is it that I really wanted to do, going back to your original question, like the life after crisis, like, what is that? I feel uniquely um, called to partner with people when they are trying to figure out how do I continue to contribute now? How do I pivot? How do I figure out what I want so I can be a better, um, more joy-filled participant in this life that I have been given um, for however many years I have left? Um, And that's really how this idea came about because I'm not a therapist. I am a solution, solutions oriented person. My husband will tell you, I am, he's always like, dude, can we not, can we just enjoy the process? Do we always have to go to the very end? Um, so I'm not sure. So tell me, give me, give me a story to latch on to that. What, what's an example of you being solutions oriented and him saying, oh, perfect. A perfect story is right after we got engaged. So, um, we had been dating, gosh, maybe nine months or so. Um, and he proposed and I said, yes. (laughs) And within about 24 to 36 hours, I had sent him, um, a spreadsheet (laughs) and a massive bullet pointed to-do list (laughs) and um that's great he did not respond right away and so I was like "Hmm, did did he get these lists and so I of course I'm talking to him all the time but I decided to email him and say you know when someone sends you a spreadsheet and a bullet pointed to-do list, it's only appropriate for you to respond with updates, specifically in a different color so that it's easy to determine where you are in the process. <laughs> and I remember him, still did not respond. <laughs> and I remember him coming to the house for dinner, coming to my apartment for dinner and saying, just wanted to let you know that I'm not your assistant. Um, when I tell you I'm getting something done, I'm getting it done. Mm-hmm. And you just need to, as my husband says, be easy. So my husband's um, Jamaican American and and that's a, a, a phrase that he uses um, on, a, uh, on a regular basis. Just be easy, be easy, Vanessa. Like, take a moment, enjoy the, enjoy what's going on, you know, enjoy these little moments. Mm. And 
that's, that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I give to people. I try not to give tons and tons of advice. Now there's a lot of people would say that's not true, but I try not to. Um, (laughs) But the biggest advice that I give to people who are engaged, whether it's for three months or three years, I'm like, enjoy every single moment, even especially the most difficult ones, because those are the ones you're going to go back to and laugh about, or you're going to learn something about who you are and what your relationship is, Mm -hmm. Uh, because you never get that back. You're never going to get that time back. You'll never do that again with that person. Yeah. That's just good life advice, really. Like, you know, just trying not to wish away the every moment, every struggle, every, you know, um, it, it's just great advice. Yeah. In the book, I have a, a chapter, um, called, I think it's, is this chapter in the book or not? But I, I, I say in the book, um, every moment is a destination mm. and it's my way of reminding myself to be present. You know, this is not a, it's not prescriptive. It's not like be present, be present. No, it's a reminder. It's a cue Mm -hmm. so that when my brain gets so focused on that end result, right, gets focused on the goal of the spreadsheet, the goal of the conversation, Mm -hmm. the goal of whatever it is that I'm doing. And I have stopped focusing on the purpose of today. It's a cue for me. Every moment is a destination. So often we, and I say we, and I mean me, get so focused on the purpose of tomorrow that we miss the opportunities to contribute today. Yeah. Tomorrow was not promised to us, right? I mean, I say all the time, like, listen, I may, I may get cancer again. So don't say that. Like, listen, it's true. I have a genetic mutation. I've had cancer twice. Like, I might get cancer again not walking around every day thinking that cancer is looming i'm just being realistic so that is true it's also true that i don't have cancer right now so how am i going to contribute today um how am i going to spread a little joy today how am I going to be gracious with myself so I can be gracious with others? Yeah. It's like what you said a little bit earlier, where you said you feel almost guilty about how good it makes you feel. Yeah. I mean, that is an amazing thing to realize when, when you feel like maybe you're drowning and overwhelmed and that, that you can flip that right on its ear by reaching out to somebody else to help mm-hmm. somebody with something. Yep. It's amazing. The power of that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so amazing. I'm Gratitude only beginning to figure that out. Oh Me my too. gosh. I wish I, ah, I, I spent so much of my life self-involved, uh, Yes, you know, and I still am I still have oh, yeah. massive oh, self-involved tendencies, you know? It's something that we all struggle with, right? It's something that is innate in us, right? We are protectors, you know, and we protect ourselves, uh, whether we realize it or not. Um, But generosity 
and gratitude are miracle drugs. They can, they're like a, a healing balm in the middle of a challenge, in the middle of a crisis, crisis. Yeah right? That's why people are so focused on things like a gratitude practice. And, and, you know, I really is a game changer. It's a game changer. And I remind people again, to remind myself that Mm -hmm. practicing gratitude is not about filling out a checklist. It's not about just writing down the five things you're grateful for in your journal and saying, check, check, check. Oh, I did my gratitude process. Not saying that's a bad thing. Listen, how different people um, cultivate and nurture gratitude in different ways. So whatever works for you, do it, right? Whatever is your cue, whatever reminds you to be present and be grateful, great. And gratitude is a posture, right? It's something that you can carry with you from moment to moment to moment. And so when you are in that moment where you're saying, oh man, like I'm just so frustrated with this call or this person, or I don't want to make this decision. There's an opportunity there. If you're carrying gratitude into that difficult decision, you can actually see the little, little glimmers, right? The little sparkles. Mm -hmm. It's like one of those, those weird filters, right? That you have on Instagram where there's like that sparkly thing over it, right? That makes it look better. And you can say, okay, this may be uncomfortable and I may not want to do this, but what can I learn from this? When is it going to be over? How can I celebrate that I did it? (laughs) Um, Oh, look at this cup I have. I love this cup. I'm so grateful for this cup. You know, like even the smallest thing like this, you know, like this cup came from the farmer's market in Carborough. It was made by this lovely little man. And every time I drink out of it, I am thankful. Um, and it's the little things, right? Yeah. And, it's, and one it's, thing. it's like letting that, um, it's like letting, I love that you're, you said to, um, it's not about checking off the list and even it, not that making a list is a bad thing, but it's like taking the moment to let the, the gratitude, let it in. And let it, let it wash through you and over you. Penetrate, right? Right. Yeah. Sometimes I'll be sitting, you know, sometimes I'm making coffee in the morning and, you know, the task of making coffee itself, it's kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah. But, you know, there are mornings when the, the light comes in and shines from the windows through the water as I'm pouring into the little little receptacle for the water in the car. And I'm like, wow, look at that. I have clean running water that is sparkling clean and flowing into my coffee maker that I have here on my counter. And it just, it transforms the whole experience from this mundane task. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I talk, it's, it's great that, you know, that little vignette that you just described, um, warms my heart for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I am obsessed with coffee and the smell of coffee and all things coffee. Um, I love the process of it. I mean, I grew up in Canada, so drinking tea and coffee is part of our um, culture, right? That kind of British 
culture, we're always drinking something hot. My mother is either offering you coffee or tea all the time. Um, but in the book, I actually talk about this pivotal moment in my journey. I was, I had cancer the first time I was in the middle of chemotherapy. Um, my ex-husband had, man, he had just left me for the second time. I was alone in New York city, just, just not a good time. Yeah. And I remember dragging myself out of bed one morning and heading out to my kitchen and putting the coffee on and the co waited for the coffee and I was exhausted. I was like, when is this coffee going to be made? And sitting down and through my little Brooklyn window, the light came through and it hit my face and the smell of the coffee, mm. the light and the coffee tasted better. It was like my, my taste buds had been off and all of a sudden the coffee tasted, it was like, reminded me of, of moments that had, were not saturated in grief and sadness. And um, I felt so grateful in that moment, even though my whole life was falling apart. And it was, it was the pivotal turning point for me to realize that every moment is a destination. Mm -hmm. And I, listen, how many times did I made coffee in that Brooklyn kitchen before? I lived there for over eight years, sure. a lot. Yeah, right. Yet that morning, I was more thankful for that coffee and that sunlight than I had ever been. And I experienced that gratitude, right? I took a moment and I practiced the pause. And I let gratitude, as you said, kind of fill up the space. Mm -hmm. And it, man, just that little moment, I remember held me through that whole day. It's and that amazing. was a point for me. Right. When you can tap into it, it's amazing. And of course you, you called it a practice because we forget. Yeah. And then we got to practice and do it again. Yeah. You know, this morning I was, I was thinking about joy and, and I'm, as we're speaking, it, it's kind of crystallizing for me. The idea that this morning I had the idea, you know, I can find joy at any time. And then I thought, no, it's not, or in any moment, that's what I was thinking. I was, I was trying to come up with a good mantra for joy. I can find joy in any moment was the first thing I thought. And, and then I thought, well, more specifically, I can find joy whenever I choose. Mm. And, and that's true in any moment, as you just said, you were in the middle of grief, you were in the middle of crisis and you found joy mm -hmm. through gratitude and it's all man it's all enmeshed it's all intertwined yeah. <laughs> yeah because then when you find that it's easy for you to give it away right mm -hmm. I'm sure I don't know who I came into contact with that day I don't remember um 
but I'm pretty sure that I was probably kinder, more loving and more generous in my disposition than perhaps I would have been if I had not practiced the pause and allowed a little bit of gratitude to seep into the crevices of the all the brokenness, right? right. And um, that is, I would say, self-care. I that totally you agree. then were, you know, you don't know who you, you may not specifically remember who you dealt with that day, but yeah, that's going to spill over into your transactions and reactions and interactions all day long. And it's all about the contribution, right? When people look at their life and you get to the end of your life, and I know a lot of people say this, but I'm thinking about it more as I get into my, you know, I'm going to be 46 this year. Mm -hmm. And, um, being at this time in my life thinking like, do I want to get to the end of my life? And <clears throat> someone to say, you know, she, you know, was a multimillionaire and, you know, had a, owned all these things. Or do I want a whole slew of people to be able to say, man, she really contributed to my life. She contributed to my hope. She contributed to my passion. She contributed to me in, in the means of like support, you know, what is our contribution? What yeah. is our definition of success? Right. And how do we allow that to change? You know, I've been working with uh, a client recently who's um, a little bit older than me. Um, so she's, uh, she's almost 50 and, a, you know, creative, wonderful, wonderful inspirational woman but really we've been digging into this idea of like what is success and what would it look like if we allowed the definition of success to be organic and living and flexible so that my definition of success today could be different than my definition of success tomorrow yeah and that I have the ability and give myself permission to change the definition at any given moment. Mm. Because when we think we're failing, it is very difficult to contribute. Because when we think we're failing, again, it becomes all about us. I'm not good enough. I can't contribute. I didn't meet this deadline. I, you know, yeah. and I how do you get past yourself right. if you're coming down on yourself like that? Exactly. Yeah. And so then what are you contributing to the world? Negativity, anger, victimhood, mm -hmm. um, comparison, there. Oh, jealousy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, my husband said it to me years ago. He's like, listen, honey, when you get stressed, you're mean. I said, no, I'm not. He goes, I love you. You get stressed. <laughs> you're mean. I was like, oh, that might be true. <laughs> um, but so how are we contributing, right? If yeah. we're continually setting ourselves up for success, if we're allowing our definitions of success to be flexible, if we're allowing our, 
our definition of self-care to be flexible and to meet the moment, then we are setting ourselves up to contribute greatly. And that doesn't mean that the things that we're doing are what the world says is great, right? Not everyone is going to run a successful nonprofit. Not everyone is going to be Oprah, right? Right. Uh, not going to give a whole bunch of people a car. Um, but the contributions that we make today, however small, are seeds that can grow into greatness tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Um, and that, man, that gives me hope. That makes me feel like, okay, well, if what I'm doing today feels a little boring and monotonous, it reminds me that, you know what? Planting little seeds is kind of boring and monotonous sometimes, and that's okay. <laughs> Not everything has to look like, you know, a trip to Bermuda and- Sometimes you got to weed the garden. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so contribution is the key. And, um, and that's, uh, man, I really hope that I can continue to contribute in whatever way every single day. And part of the way I contribute is through transparency. Um, I, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. It's really helped me through periods of my life. And it's also hurt me through periods of my life. A lot of comparison and feeling like mm -hmm. I needed to be a certain way to um, fit into a box that social media had uh had created for me an idea of a romanticized crisis. And um, I feel like part of my contribution is bringing a level of transparency to say like, listen, crisis sucks. Suffering is not fun. Pain is uncomfortable. If you, if you really want to serve the needs of people who are suffering, then you have to be willing to experience suffering yourself because it's really difficult to help someone if you've never need to be helped before. Yeah, and to be, speaking to the whole social media comparison game, to be willing to be transparent about your own struggles, I think is a gift to everybody. Yeah you know, yeah. so that they're not looking at your feed thinking that you have it all figured out and you're so perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it goes back to normalizing things, right? Normalizing mm -hmm. crisis, normalizing, you know, what it's like to have a screaming child in a grocery store, normalizing what it's like to feel like you're not sure what you've been doing for the last 45 years and worried that, you know, you missed your opportunity to contribute, right? Normalizing what it feels like to have a midlife opportunity that's masked in a crisis, right? Yeah. Like to normalize that and normalize those feelings of uncertainty and fear and 
disappointment and loss and all of that stuff, right? And yeah. not, and allow it there to be some ragged edges because it's, it's the ragged edges that people actually relate to. Indeed. People may like the perfectly filtered picture. It's the ragged edges that actually make a difference. Absolutely. Oh so. my gosh. I could talk to you all day. It's funny, like we, we kind of launched into this conversation and, and um, it's just been phenomenal. I feel like, I've, you know, you and I have only spoken twice ever, yeah. but man, I feel like I know you so well. And I, we didn't even really get into your story too much, which is funny because normally I start with having people tell their stories, but I just feel like there's been so much value in this conversation. And I just want to thank you. It's amazing to have these conversations to talk about really getting through crisis, I guess is, is really what it is, is, is where do we all go from here? What's possible? Oh my goodness. What are you, is there anything that you're excited about right now? Speaking of what's coming up or what direction you might go next? So I'm really excited. I'm writing, um, I'm working with uh, my old editor and I'm writing some supplemental materials for Make Room for Joy. Um, it's going to be a daily, um, a daily guide that will be available on my website. Cool. So I'm super excited about doing that. Uh, we write every Fridays. Um, so I'm working on that. And I'm also really excited about, I'm working with, um, her name is Glow and she's on social media. She has a fabulous Instagram, but she's a social educator and um, her Instagram handle is Glow Graphics. And she has a new social educators academy um, that she has brought about maybe 15 women into um and i'm participating in that with her it's kind of a collective and i'm really excited being a part of that it's it's all about um reshaping how we are um, using our stories and really using social media so that we're not it's not about value validation, but it's about mm. contribution. Mm. It's about educating. Wow. It's, a, it's, it's kind of turning the tables on that. So the best um, possible use of social yes, media, I'm right? I'm really excited about that as well. That is, wow. um, and, you know, listen, people can read more about my story in my book, Make Room for Joy. It's available everywhere. It's available um, uh, on you know, iTunes audiobooks and Audible and anywhere you buy your book, you can get it. Um, you can also get it from my website, VanessaJoyWalker.com. Um, you can find more about my, my coaching there. Um, and most importantly, I always hope that when people listen to my story or hear me speak, that they don't remember that many details about me but that they 
remember something about how I made them feel. And then ultimately they are inspired to see their own story differently. Um, because that's the goal. Yeah. Our stories make us and, and if we can take, take some, I mean, there's always the possibility of, of taking your story and, and reframing mm -hmm. it from, from something that helps you to move forward with power and joy or something that holds you back and keeps you feeling small. Yep. Very cool. Onward to growth. Onward. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Thank you so, so much. Ah, we got to do this again, I think. Uh, definitely. Make room for joy part two. <laughs> right on. <laughs> well, there you have it. I loved talking with Vanessa. I think I'm going to have to do it again, actually, at some point. Um, so, you know, the thing is, is I've been on a mission in the past few years in my, in my own life to embrace the beauty in the imperfect. I think the biggest thing I took from my conversation with her is the idea that the pain and brokenness we all have can be used to help others. In fact, our individual stories enable us to provide help for others in a way that is unique and valuable because, because we have suffered, because we are broken. If you want more information about Vanessa, I'll have that information for you in the show notes. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 50 to find all the links. Episode 50, y'all. Oh my gosh, we're coming up on a year here. Can you believe it? Woo! It's been a fun ride. Anyway, while you're there at the uh, show notes, you can also find a link to sign up for your free guide, Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and well. Talk soon. <laughs>